moat around their business that way. But for uh, many companies out there that need machine learning engineers, uh, the solution is to make sure that their, their own talent, right, the employees of these companies, uh, have the opportunity to grow their careers, right? If their employees could take their careers seriously, uh, they want to grow in their roles, have the necessary time, resources to study, you know, have that grit to climb the learning curve. Uh, I think ultimately, once they climb that learning curve, that will help them climb the uh, career ladder as well. So I think my book is very much written for this audience, for the folks who want to study own the companies uh, that they work for uh, with the help of their teams and um, ultimately make themselves more effective machine learning engineers. No, that, that's great. And um, speaking of careers as well, like MLOps, again, the term's been around for two or three years now, and it's very, very um, well used, if not overused, and kind of a big tent, um, big umbrella kind of expression. But it was derived originally from DevOps. So can you talk a little bit about you know the intersect of DevOps and MLOps, if you can expand on that topic a little bit, Carl? Uh, sure. So uh, I think it came across in our conversation that uh, I am biased by my software engineering background, but I, I think uh, it's not controversial at all to say that machine learning systems are software systems, software intensive systems. So from that standpoint, much of what, what we know about DevOps applies to machine learning. And of course, uh, from the DevOps standpoint, automation is that is one of those critical intersection points. So when I say automation, I'm talking about things like uh, continuous integration, continuous delivery pipeline. Uh, so in fact, in one of the recent projects that I've worked on uh, with, um, uh, with a major online matchmaking website, uh, one of the key challenges has been taking the experience that the software engineers have had in building out CI, CD pipelines and bringing that into the world of uh, uh, machine learning. But I think automation doesn't end there. Uh, it also covers things like test automation. So in other words, how do you make sure that as the engineers, as the machine learning practitioners are put, uh, putting some tests around uh, the functionality of the system, the performance of the system, that there's a way to automate checks uh, of, uh, of those systems against the tests. And also it covers things like infrastructure as code. So infrastructure as code is a major part of um, my book. So I talk about the fact that it's important to be able to provision the infrastructure in a cloud-based environment rapidly, and then just, just as rapidly, uh, one needs to be able to tear it down. And that's what provides uh, practitioners with cost efficiency in the cloud. So I talk uh, about the use of infrastructure as code, and ultimately, I think these dimensions from DevOps um, uh, CICD testing, uh, infrastructure as code, these are probably top three that come to mind when I think about the uh, intersection between the two. But ultimately, um, what I want to say about this relationship between the DevOps and ML, uh, ultimately, I think it comes down to this idea of um, agility, right? So ag agile software engineering is a, a big part of modern dev DevOps. And I think what machine learning practitioners need to uh, uh, need to study in more uh, detail or need to pick up from the DevOps uh, practice is this idea of accelerating the life cycle of a system. 
So that basically means getting into the kind of patterns that uh, software engineering practitioners have, where new features, new capabilities are introduced into an ML system uh, daily, and then the velocity of releases, the velocity of deployments goes from you know once a quarter to something that uh, uh, can support multiple deployments of new features, new capabilities per day. So I think we're still missing that the interaction uh, between ML ops and DevOps. Yeah, I can I can definitely uh, agree on that, Carl. So again, I'll just remind our viewers: um, you can pose your questions um, for Carl, and we do have a couple. Um, one from Hermit Kumar, and he wanted to know if you can differentiate your books and how much is involved in hands-on practice, or is it more theory? So, uh, so yeah, <laughs> good question. Uh, so we've been, we've been talking about uh, ML ops at fairly high level. So the entire book is actually structured around the project. So I mentioned that uh, uh, at my own consultancy, I worked on the uh, this food delivery application. So some of my learnings there went into the uh, the book, and the book is structured around this uh, specific use case in uh, delivery and logistics, uh, which is the ETA problem or estimated mm -hmm. time of arrival. And in the book, I basically take a data set um, and uh, use that data set, single data set, throughout the entire book. So I start with the uh, data set of these car rides in Washington, D.C. I go through the process of preparing that data set, show how to clean it up, uh, show how to build a PyTorch-based deep learning model uh, around it, how to implement that model, scale it, eliminate boilerplate in that model, and ultimately prepare it to go into production. Great. And touching upon that a little bit, um, you cover serverless machine learning in your book quite a bit, and serverless machine learning in software engineering as a concept has been around quite a while, and now it's definitely creeped into the machine learning uh, workflow lexicon, definitely with um, as an ML topic, and I'm sure many of us on this call are familiar what serverless um, compute is. But if you can just give us a, a brief overview of that, Carl, and then how it relates to its importance within machine learning workflow, love to hear that. Right. Uh, so serverless uh, is definitely this topic that uh, came about from more of DevOps, more of software engineering side of things. And um, uh, as I mentioned, there's quite a bit of overlap between that and modern ML ops practices. So uh, for those who are not familiar, uh, serverless is this concept of um, uh, executing code, usually in a cloud-based environment. And serverless is uh, one of those terms that seems uh, nonsensical uh, <laughs> at a glance, <laughs> because how do you run your code without servers? Right, yeah. uh, but uh, in a nutshell, uh, serverless is not about uh, the fact that your code runs without servers. The servers are still there to run your code. It's more about the experience of writing code in a way that helps the practitioner, helps the developer forget about the fact that that code can be put somewhere in a cloud where it actually runs on the physical servers. So in practice, this means that the developer can focus on writing, let's say, their deep learning model and not have to worry about um, uh, what kind of operating system that they're running, not have to worry about patching and updating that operating system uh, against the latest security advisories, uh, maybe managing middleware and more. Uh, 
So ultimately, the way that I look at serverless for machine learning is about making the practitioner more productive. So this means that as a practitioner, you can build your code that might be preparing data or cleaning up data. You can prepare code that helps you do analysis on that data, or even maybe just train your ML model. And then you pass that code over to your cloud provider and let cl the cloud provider handle these kind of operational details. So this is what makes the practitioner more productive. And in the book, I take a very broad view of serverless machine learning. So I mentioned that this is not just about deploying into something like a, a Lambda or Google Cloud Functions-based environment. This is really about using all these features of uh, cloud providers that manage the underlying infrastructure. So for instance, in the book, I show how to write your scalable data preparation code, everything from data ingestion to data cleanup, to data analysis uh, using uh, AWS Glue specifically, which is a Apache Spark-based environment, serverless Apache Spark-based environments, and then continuing from there, uh, essentially using uh, uh, serverless tools to help you train your model and more. Excellent. Now, you mentioned earlier in an interview um, about PyTorch, and you have devoted a few chapters in your book to PyTorch. And I believe in your past um, roles, you were an expert in TensorFlow. So I think you'd be a good person to answer this question. And that seems to us that PyTorch definitely seems to be gaining traction on TensorFlow. Why, why is that? Uh, so at Google Cloud, 100% uh, of my time was spent on helping build out, helping customers build out TensorFlow-based systems. And then after I left Google, I switched uh, to PyTorch, and I haven't looked back. Uh, so if you're asking why, I think the short answer is that PyTorch provides or offers a better development experience to pr practitioners. And there are many underlying reasons for that. Uh, one, I think, is timing. I think uh, PyTorch matured just at the right time when uh, uh, TensorFlow 1.x uh, started seeming outdated to practitioners and Keras and TensorFlow 2.x hasn't caught on yet. So I think PyTorch uh, was the right solution at the right time. Uh, but personally, I like PyTorch for uh, other reasons. So I like PyTorch because of the strong documentation, strong, well-designed, consistent documentation. I like PyTorch because it gives me access to the underlying automatic differentiation um, and uh, gives me quite a bit of control over that. So I think that's important once you start getting into distributed training and these other topics. Uh, and ultimately, I think PyTorch uh, uh, is just more fun to write PyTorch code. Excellent. Yes, 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 yes. So um, we covered a lot in MLOps, but what, but what do you think is next for MLOps? Like um, what are so, either some of the unsolved problems or what do you think? Because there's a lot of um, startups building out MLOps platforms. There's a lot going on in that space. Um, one would think with all the activity that's we've solved all these MLOps problems. And, and we've, we've talked a few about a few challenges already um, that haven't been solved. But what do you think is 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 are we going to be seeing in the next um, coming months and years around the MLOps space? Hmm. Uh, okay, so 
I'm going to hedge a little bit because we're talking about the future and, and what we what are we going to see there. So I um, I'll make a little bit of a safe uh, bet, and I would say that ML ops is going to start to look more like DevOps. Uh, mm -hmm. So that shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody, but there's a specific area of DevOps that I think is still diffusing its way through MLOps, and that is everything having to do with culture. So uh, mature DevOps organization are quite good at creating a team-based culture, uh, which uh, is built around things like transparency, uh, collaboration, communication, and I think MLOps still has uh, quite a way uh, to go there. And I think one of the problems is, um, uh, let's say, academic training, uh, which is very strong for many people who go into machine learning engineering and end up in MLOps. So I find that academia fosters this uh, uh, approach of taking a problem, going out on your own, solving it, and then returning back with a solution. And this is uh, very much against core principles of uh, culture in DevOps. So to give you an example, uh, actually, I'll continue with that example of working with um, an online matchmaking company. So I'm sure uh, all of you can think of some of the brands that are out there that uh, help people date each other. Uh, but specifically within that company, I worked with a very strong machine learning engineer. And we tried to create this agile culture, uh, institute DevOps practices. And for the ML engineer, the task was you know, uh, apparently and then come back with a solution. And the challenge with that approach is that in a DevOps practice, the solution responsibility for the solution is shared across the entire team. So it's important not just to be able to come back with the best solution. It's important to come back with a solution that can be supported by the entire team, and the entire team can hold the responsibility and be uh, successful uh, supporting that solution. And in some cases, this means maybe finding a solution that's not just best for the data set and for the model, but finding the solution that um, uh, works well for the kind of infrastructure that the team can support, works well for the kind of CI-CD pipeline that uh, the business objectives are driving, right, in terms of the number of deployments that one wants to accomplish per day, or the kind of automation and test automation that the organization wants to set up. So I think um, more transparency, better collaboration, I hope these kinds of cultural values will be uh, more prevalent in MLOps as this field matures. Excellent nice insights, Carl. So we're coming up to the top of 45 minutes, which is usually our max time, but we will take one more question from our audience. Now, Elon uh, Moyala has a very good question, and that is, how can I leverage MLOps to create systems that are not heavily reliant on the internet, uh, let's say, for creating projects that impact places with low internet connectivity? And we've gotten this question quite a few over the years. And I think um, a very interesting one, we're talking about MLOps at scale. So places with low internet connectivity, I think you've already kind of answered some of those questions because it is serverless, it is some, somebody else's cloud, but go ahead, Carl. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would say the approach taken in my book is not mutually exclusive with your uh, use case. And here's why. So the places with low internet connection, ultimately are the places with the uh, effectively low bandwidth. 
right? That's, that's what you're describing. Low bandwidth, high latency. And I challenge you to think about cloud computing environments as virtual test beds for what you're describing. Because in modern cloud computing environments, you can easily simulate the environment with low bandwidth, high latency. It's, uh, it's basically something that you can do as part of the configuration of your environment. You have control over that. So think about using cloud as a way to develop the solution with the, your target, you know, target uh, geography or target, um, uh, uh, target quality of service requirements in place. And then actually, once you develop that solution, take the next step and push out that solution to the edge, right? To the edge of the, uh, of the internet. So whether it's cell phones or, uh, I don't know, low energy devices, Raspberry Pis and so on. So simulate them in the cloud, make sure you can get things done in that familiar environment first, and then move on to the next phase where you actually go into production in your specific um, region, your specific environment. Great advice, Carl. Thank you so much. And last but not least, um, people want to follow you, get in touch with you. I know we've um, shared your email to get those copies, those 10 free books, but um, are you blogging? Are you on LinkedIn? Um, uh, I'm not blogging as much as I should, but feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. It's just Carl Asipov. Uh, I think hopefully I'm still the only one there under that name. Uh, and uh, yeah, if you want to reach out, feel free to email me. Yeah, and Carl, it's a pleasure having you on the show. Um, you did speak at uh, one of our ODSC conferences a number of years ago. You know, when your busy schedule permits, we'd love to have you back to speak on uh, this and other topics. So thank you once again for taking the time out of your busy schedule, and we will chat again. Thank you for the invitation, and thank you for having me. Excellent. Uh,